0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from the North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. Would you please open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis, chapter four? If you're using the Pew Bible, the text is on page three Genesis, chapter four. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold." And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord.
1: Well, this morning we resume our study of Genesis. If you've been with us, we took a two-week break for our global focus and now we resume in Genesis 4, which reveals the effects of the fall and of increasing evil. So would you join me as we pray and ask God for help? Father in heaven, open our eyes to see what you want us to see from this text so that we would be more like your son, Jesus, and that we would treasure him in all of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the English language, we'll often use idioms to describe the brokenness of our world. Murphy's Law says anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Some people like to call it the buttered toast effect. You guys heard of this? when you butter a piece of toast, if it falls to the ground, it will always land on the buttered side down. It's an expression to reflect our pessimistic outlook on life. We live in a fallen world and there's many expressions of that brokenness. Our most famous pessimist is Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, the stuffed donkey kids, you guys know what I'm talking about, and he says things like this, I'm not going to do the, the voice, Ben Katterson could probably do it, but I can't do it. He says, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist with low expectations, or my glass is half empty and it probably has a crack in it too. So Eeyore, Murphy's Law, the buttered toast effect all try to make sense of our fallen, broken world. But to see the fallenness of our world, to make sense of the fallenness of our world, you don't have to look far, you just have to look at Genesis 4. We saw last week in Genesis 3 that the catastrophe where Adam and Eve's disobedience leads to a world that is forever marred by sin. Sin wreaks havoc on our lives and in Our world, and we see one of the most heinous and tragic examples of that this morning. A brother kills his own brother. For the parents that are among us, just imagine yourself in those shoes. The perpetrator is your own flesh and blood. I can't imagine anything more devastating. And yet, what we see in Genesis 4 is that in the midst of this increasing evil and increasing wickedness, that God is faithful to preserve the seed of the woman. God is faithful to keep unfolding his plan of redemption for the world. God is preparing a way for the offspring of the woman, ultimately, who will be Jesus Christ. And so my aim this morning is to see these threads of faithfulness These threads of grace in Genesis 4 in the midst of increasing evil. Now, what we saw last uh, three weeks ago, actually, is that Adam and Eve are guilty of high treason against God. And they're banished from the garden. They're expelled from Eden and from the tree of life. And our plan this morning is to look at our passage in two main halves. First, we get part one, which is the cruelty of Cain. And then we get part two, which is the culture of Cain. The cruelty of Cain, verses 1 through 16, and then the culture of Cain from 17 to 26. So look with me now at the very beginning. We see in these opening verses of chapter 4 that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. He knew her in a sexual manner. And he had named her, in chapter 3, verse 20, the mother of all living, With anticipation, and now it's come to fruition. And Eve says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I think there's a sense in which she's saying, I did it, but the accent mark, the emphasis, is on what she has done. It's contrasted with what she says later when she has Seth. We later learn that Abel was a shepherd, he was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a farmer, a worker of the ground. Now, Eve fulfills her God-given role in childbearing, that they're beginning to fulfill this creation mandate where God had told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. And we see it's happening. So there's this hopefulness, this hopeful note. Cain works the ground, Abel cares for the animals, and they live happily ever after, Right? Sadly, no. The the tension begins in verse 3. Cain and Abel bring offerings to God in worship, and this occasion sparks Cain's anger. It says, God, the Lord, had regard for Abel and his offering. This is verse 4. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, it's debated why Cain's offering was rejected, Is it because God preferred a blood offering versus a grain offering? Is it perhaps that animals were more welcome than vegetables? It's unlikely because Cain, just like Adam, is a gardener, which was assigned by God. And grain offerings and sacrificial animal offerings are required in the Mosaic law. I think our text gives us this clue. If you see verse 4, Abel's gift is described as the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And if you were to see a parallel, Cain's offering should have said the first fruits of his harvest. But it doesn't say that. It's just an offering of the fruit. So Abel gives the very best portions to God, the finest of his animals and the fat portions. Think ribeye steak and not ground beef. Now, Later in the Old Testament, God instructs Israel when they bring offerings in Exodus 23, Exodus 13, they're to bring the first fruits and the firstborn from the flock. But Cain doesn't do that. And I think this reveals his indifference towards God. The offering reveals the heart of the giver. Uh, that, that's what Jesus taught in Mark 12 when he talked about this poor widow that came to the temple and she gave two coins that together made up a penny. So she gave very little financially. But what does Jesus say about her offering? He says that she contributed much because she gave all that she had. So motives matter. And God accepted Abel's gift because it was offered with this heart of reverence. But Cain's was rejected i think he was just going through the motions now god comes and says to him verse six he says why are you angry and why has your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. There are several strands of grace here in these verses. Did you see them? First is that God is still present among his people. They've been banished from the garden. You would think that they would have no relationship with a holy God despite their sin, in light of their sin. But God speaks to Cain face to face this first family still enjoys intimacy with God. The second thing we see is that God comes and questions Cain as an opportunity for him to confess his sin, just like we saw in chapter three in the garden. When God comes to Adam and Eve, here is an opportunity to own up to their sin for Cain to come clean. The third strand of grace we see is that God even gives Cain instructions to not let sin overcome him. You see that there in verse 7? You must rule over it. Here we get sin pictured as a predator crouching in the doorway, ready to pounce on its prey. And God speaks to Cain, giving him an opportunity to turn, even teaching him what it looks like to do that. Emotions don't just happen to you, but we control them. But the story continues, verse 8. Cain lures Abel into the field. This is calculated, this is premeditated, and this is without remorse, and he kills him. And God again comes to him. Where is Abel your brother? And Cain, instead of saying, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. I've done wrong, Lord. What does he say instead? In infamous fashion, he says, I don't know. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He flat out lies and then he arrogantly comes right back at God. You expect me to know where my brother is at all times? I have no clue. It shows his shamelessness. Adam and Eve at least understood and hid themselves with fig leaves. Cain just stands there and says, don't know. As he wipes the blood off his hands. Cain's answer reveals his hardened heart. The Old Testament later will teach in Leviticus and Numbers that brothers are to avenge each other and to help one another. Verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Leviticus seventeen eleven says life is in the blood and to shed innocent blood is to defile the land. Numbers 35, 33 says, says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except how? Except by the blood of the one who shed it. That's Numbers 35, 33. It means that Abel's blood cries out for justice and what would be just in this moment is that Cain would likewise be killed. But God again shows grace now god issues cain's punishment we we saw curses back in genesis 3 but it was the serpent that was cursed and it was the ground that was cursed but now cain himself is cursed you're cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand verse 12 when you work the ground it shall no longer yield to you its strength you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth It really is quite tragic. Cain protests. This is the first protest that we see here. And he says it's going to be like a death sentence. So just notice with me, Cain shows no remorse for the killing, no sorrow, no shame over the murder of his own brother. But now when he gets punished, he has all of this self-pity. And this is the picture of sin, isn't it? That when we get found out, we have earthly sorrow, but not godly grief. Cain cares only about his punishment, not the innocent blood that he's shed. And I think what the reader is supposed to see is this increasing wickedness that continues and continues to grow. Cold-blooded murder, no remorse. Punishment comes, that's the only thing he cares about. And yet there's this Another thread of grace. God indeed does protect Cain. He says in verse 15, If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. That sevenfold is the picture of completion. It doesn't mean whoever kills him, you know, six of his other siblings or family is going to be killed. It's just this picture of completion, full retribution. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, we don't know what this mark is it could have been like a tattoo or a hairstyle or a birthmark on the face but I think it probably would have had the same effect as what Adam and Eve received when they were banished from the garden what what did they get they got skins to cover their shame and the skins were both a, a mercy God gave that to them to protect them but it was a constant reminder That blood had to be shed and it was your sin that had brought that about. And I think the same is true for Cain. He would get this mark that would be a constant reminder of what he's done and of his shame. And yet it would serve to protect him. And now he's driven away even further east of Eden. Now I want to see several things from this first part of our passage. The first is that we should beware of giving Satan a foothold with our sin. Beware of giving Satan a foothold in our sin. Cain allowed bitterness and resentment to become full-blown murder. And so this morning, are any of us harboring a grudge? Is there unforgiveness somewhere in your own heart? Don't allow it to grow into hatred and anger and rage and even the very seeds of murder. And this is true of all sin, isn't it? Compromise with sin sears our conscience. If we entertain a little bit and say, it's not that bad, it has a tendency to grow and grow and grow. Anxiety becomes unbelief, lust Eventually it becomes adultery or fornication or a sexual addiction. Laziness becomes a languishing spiritual life. Sin prowls around like a devouring lion. It's not a cute little kitten that you can control. I remember reading a story of a man in South Africa and there was a flood that happened and so he ended up adopting this baby hippo which ended up being separated from its mother. And he raised it like his, uh, his own. He brushed its teeth. He, he created a little lake for it on this farm in South Africa. And for six years, he, it was like family. And he said, you can totally have a good relationship with a hippo, which happens to be the most deadly of animals and has the most kills of humans than of any animal, I believe. Well, eventually he was eaten and killed by this hippo, this pet hippo. That's what it's like to entertain and play with sin. And our culture says the complete opposite thing, doesn't it? It says, be free, just indulge your passions, just do what you want, just be your true authentic self. Whatever you wanna do, just do it. That's what God would want anyways, right? Indulge to your heart's content. And yet we see again and again and again in our world that it's this that leads to all sorts of heartache and pain, substance abuse, addictions, sexual morality, ruined lives, ruined families, ultimately spiritual death. This morning, if you're A young man that's wrestling with rage that simmers beneath the surface, or perhaps a young woman who's looking for love and acceptance in all the wrong places and from all the wrong people, or or perhaps we're just overcome with shame or or bitterness or resentment. What what do we do? How do we fight sin? If God said to Adam, you must master it, you must overcome it before it overcomes you. I want to just give three really practical things for those who are fighting sin this morning. The first is that we need to remember that we're already dead to sin if we are in Christ. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, how do I live it? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up. For me, we we, we just call to mind once again that I'm dead to sin. It has no decisive power over me if I am ultimately in Christ. The second thing, we fight sin by putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Romans 8 13. So we ask God for help and say, Oh Lord, give me your spirit, your empowering presence, in order to fight and flee from sin to not give in and third that we confess our sin we run to God and not away from him first John 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness now before we move on into the second part the second half I want to just mention one other verse in the New Testament that calls to mind this particular passage. It's 1 John 3, 11 and 12, and it talks about Genesis 4. So 1 John 3, it's not John's gospel, it's his epistle. 1 John 3, verse 11, and it says this, "'For this is the message that you have heard "'from the beginning, that we should love one another. "'We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one "'and murdered his brother.'" And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. This passage in 1 John 3 highlights two things that I think we have to see. The first is that there is a cosmic war that is raging between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Do you see how Cain was described? He says, he is of the evil one. He's of Satan, he's of the devil. He is the son of the serpent. He's the offspring of the evil one and he killed the offspring of the woman. Genesis 4 is not just about this little family dispute. What it's doing is it's showing us this living metaphor of this universal war, this cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil. We'll see more of this later on in our passage. The second thing that this shows us is that Cain murdered Abel. Why? What does it say again? It says, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That means that those who do evil hate those who do what is right. And John uses Cain as an occasion to encourage the disciples to say, just know that you're going to be hated by the world. That if you try to follow Jesus, if you obey him, if you're winsome, if you're gentle and you're kind and you love others and you do food drives and you help clothe people, they will hate you. Do not be surprised. For example, the the new speaker of the house, if you're following politics, the new speaker of the house, Mike Johnson, is a professed Christian. His beliefs have been called dangerous, anti-LGBTQ and extreme. And and you might think, well, what does he believe that he's so terrible of a person? Well, he believes what all biblical Christians have always believed about biblical sexual ethics. The media labels him with all sorts of scary labels, Christian nationalists, MAGA, anti-abortion, homophobic. And if this is said of a Bible-believing politician, it will be said of us as well. So what do we do? How do we respond? We do what we have always done, what Christians have always done from the very beginning. We stand firm on the unshakable word of God. We speak the truth in love. We count it a privilege when we're maligned and hated and persecuted for Jesus' sake, because it's evidence we're real Christians. We believe what the Bible says and teaches, and we will not compromise for anything first half of Genesis 4 ends quite anticlimactically, doesn't it? Cain murders Abel in cold blood. God punishes Cain, preserves his life. Sin wreaks havoc on our world. Abel is dead. Things are going from bad to worse. And that leads us now to the culture of Cain. The second half of Genesis 17 to 26, if you read it, was listening closely, you might think this seems entirely unrelated to the unfolding of the very first family. Like, why is it even in here? Verses 17 to 24 trace Cain's family and his descendants. He builds a city, he names it after his son Enoch. I think this shows that his concern is with his own legacy rather than that of God's. Cain's family line continues. He has children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and all the way to Lamech. Now, several questions arise in this text. Why is it included? Why do we have this detailed account of Cain's descendants? And what's the significance of Lamech, where he's given these extra verses in 23 and 24, which is often called the Song of the Sword. So, let's see. Through this line of Cain, the wicked culture of Cain continues. I think that's what the author wants us to see. This is the lineage of a murderer, And in fact, the son of the devil. Cain hates Abel for his righteousness. So what we see is this increasing wickedness and evil at work in the world. We see that Lamech is both a polygamist in verse 19, he has two wives, and a murderer in verse 23. So this increasing evil shows the active work of the offspring of the serpent. That there's gonna be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Lamech reveals the continuation of this wicked culture. Now, in our day and age, it's probably necessary, it is necessary, unfortunately, to give an apologetic against polygamy. The first polygamist is a wicked man who boasts in killing a man in the line of the offspring of the devil. This describes reality. It's not prescriptive. What it's showing is that even marriage is marred by the fall, marred by sin, that mankind begins to live contrary to God's design. Genesis always portrays polygamy leading to painful consequences and relational strife. You can even read about it in Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17. And yes, the Bible records many of the heroes of the faith, Abraham and Jacob and David and Solomon, practicing polygamy, but it never commends their behaviors. I think polygamy is the ominous note that is struck time and time again to show their departure away from God's design. One writer put it this way, the story of the first polygamist in scripture establishes that those who follow Lamech's polygamous ways do so not out of righteousness, but because they've sinfully embraced the ways of the serpent and followed in the pattern of Cain's unrighteous seed. Now, Cain's descendants establish a contrast for what we'll see next week in Genesis 5, where we'll trace the line from Adam through Seth all the way to Noah. But we'll talk about that next week. Now, the account of Genesis doesn't answer every question that we have, but maybe one question in some of your minds, maybe the kids, maybe some of the adults even, is where did Cain find his wife? Well, It's good to understand that Adam and Eve had many other children besides Cain and Abel and Seth. Look with me at Genesis 5, 4. It says, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and then it gives us this, and he had other sons and daughters. So it's likely that Seth and Cain married one of their sisters. This is later prohibited in the Bible, Leviticus 18, 9, but everyone comes from adam and eve now adam lived 930 years 130 before he fathered seth and then another 800 so 930 years just imagine if you were in your prime for 600 years and there's no contraception you could have a lot of children right we had five in ten years if i had 800 years not quite 400 but you know you could have a lot of kids each subsequent generation, if, each subse- if you had children and by 20 years old, if they had their own children, Adam and Eve, if they lived, and he did, 930 years, he would have seen the 45th generation. Great, 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 great grandchildren. You get the picture. So it takes no stretch of the imagination to see how the earth quickly populated. In Egypt, Jacob's 12 sons, I think they went into Egypt with like 70 people. And they turned into millions of people within 400 years of slavery. Now, what do we make of Lamech's children and great-grandchildren? They're described as tent dwellers and herdsmen, the founder of musical instruments, the lyre and the pipe, forger of instruments, bronze, iron, ancient blacksmith. I think what we see is that there is this common grace that's at work. There's the establishment of a city, there's tools, there's technological prowess that's taking place, there's human development that grows. We weren't just Neanderthals hitting each other with sticks. There's development of culture, and yet it goes side by side with moral failure, We see this in our world today, don't we? We have technologies that can cut down uh, on the type of work, dangerous work that people do, and it's those same technologies that destroy life. We can heal diseases and have surgeries and laparoscopic whatevers, and then we go in and we take the life of an unborn child. It illustrates that human ingenuity is used for both good and evil. Now, let's zoom in on verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. What, what is that all that about? It's the arrogant boasting of a violent man. He's boasting of a vengeance of a guy who scratched him and he said, I killed him. Essentially, if you dare scratch me, I'll murder you and your whole family. That's the boasting that Lamech is doing here. How dare you mess with me? Don't you dare. I will get revenge. I would demolish everyone around if you dare attack me. That's what he's boasting in. And what makes this boast even more wicked is that he declares it to his wives. So they suffer the humiliation of polygamy and the threat of their husband's violent temper. The use of young man here suggests that this is a vulnerable, younger man and merely a flesh wound, and yet he killed him for it. And very often in the Old Testament, there was rules about that, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we think, man, that sounds really brutal. But that was just because if someone pokes out your eye, you can't kill him. And yet that's what Lamech does. Flesh wound, I killed him. This gloating again shows this increasing wickedness that he's boasting. He's wearing it as a badge of honor and he takes God's mark of protection for Cain and says, I'll get even more revenge than that. This is a reminder that the seed of the devil is alive and well in our world. And you don't have to look far for that, do you? Hamas terrorists boast of murder and rape and beheading of infants. Sin rages on and wreaks havoc, both in Genesis 4 and in 2023. In the midst of all of this increasing wickedness, increasing evil, increasing heartache and sadness are these threads of grace and these notes of hope. And that's what we get in verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. It's no longer, I have gotten a man, but God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. God preserves the seed of the woman despite Cain's murder of Abel. Seth is the hope of another seed that will carry on the righteous lineage. Abel was killed, Cain was disqualified, but to Seth will come ultimately the offspring of the woman that will bring blessing to the whole world. Notice the contrast between Cain's lineage and Seth's. Cain's lineage is epitomized in his boast to say, if anyone dares mess with me, I will kill them. And instead, in verse 26, this is what characterizes Seth's lineage. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. So where Lamech's family, Cain's family, pioneered all sorts of technological advance and ultimately human boasting, Seth's family calls upon God. They pioneer worship the thread of hope that runs through this account of sin and death that flows from the fall. So the main point of Genesis chapter 4 is this. God is faithful. God is faithful to carry out his plan of redemption despite growing and increasing wickedness. God is faithful to preserve his plan for mankind. The murder of Abel cannot thwart God's design. Cain's banishment and his curse cannot thwart God's design. Lamech's wickedness cannot unravel God's sovereign will. Genesis four helps Israel to understand why there seems to be this war raging between good and evil in their world and in our world. How did we possibly get here? Why is everything broken? It's because there is indeed this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Or 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion or a giant hippo seeking someone to devour. Now, before we end, I want to point to one more thing. Genesis 4 is primarily, is mainly about Cain and the culture of Cain, this growing wickedness and God's faithfulness to sustain this line. And yet, we see that it's all about Cain, isn't it? Abel does not speak a word. Seth does not speak a single word. And yet in the New Testament, we read that Jesus speaks a better word than Abel. Hebrews twelve twenty four. Hebrews 12, 24 says, just give you the context, He says, we don't come to Mount Sinai like in the Exodus. We don't come to this mountain that is scary, full of cloud and smoke and lightning and thunder, where everyone was fearful, but what do we come to instead? Hebrews 12, 24, he says, now we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what does Abel's blood speak, if it speaks a better word than what Abel's blood speaks? Abel's blood from the ground cries out for justice, for vengeance, for retribution. But now in Jesus, his blood speaks a better word. So what does Jesus' blood speak? Well, Throughout the book of Hebrews, we get this picture of Jesus comes as the high priest and he inaugurates a new covenant by his blood. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. He enters into the Holy of Holies. Not by killing the blood of a bull so that he could sprinkle it, but by his own blood he enters in. He secures eternal redemption for his people. He purifies his people, gives them forgiveness of sins. It's his blood that is sprinkled that washes us clean. And so Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for justice. Jesus' blood is what obtained justice so that now he speaks. This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. No more. Jesus' blood speaks that word for his people. No more lawless deeds, no more sins, they are forgiven. This is why we can come to Jesus. We have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have full assurance of faith. Why? because our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Our bodies have been washed with pure water and we hold fast to Jesus because he alone is faithful to bring us all the way home. So unlike Lamech who boasts in revenge, 77-fold, Jesus says, no, no, no. When your brother sins against you, you forgive them 77 times. Because of what I will accomplish in the cross. Because of what I will purchase. Unmerited grace so that you would be forgiven of all your sins, way more than 77 or 77 times 77. All of them forgiven by the blood of Jesus so that when your brother sins against you for the seventh time or 77th time, you can forgive, you can let go of your grievance, of your anger, of your trauma, of your frustration, of your resentment because of what Christ himself has done. So if you're far from Christ, if you're running away, if you're living east of Eden, shaking your fist or just entirely indifferent, you can come, come and receive the cleansing blood of Jesus and be brought into relationship with him once again. You too can call upon the name of the Lord. And for all those who are trusting in Jesus, we're cleaving to him. We're gonna partake of the table, which reminds us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Let's pray. Father, help us to see Jesus in all of his glory and majesty, and beauty. Oh, in the midst of great wickedness, both in Genesis 4 and in our world today, we thank you that we get glimpses of hope and threads of grace, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from the North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.